Welcome to another episode of Inspired Artist Podcast with me, Porter Singer. In this one, I'm speaking with Nadine Stellavato-Brown, who is a graphic designer who also happens to be a second-generation member of the 3HO community, meaning her parents were students of Yogi Bhajan, and she grew up in this community, being sent away from her parents to various ashrams to India. And so in this episode, she's sharing with us her experience, what her life looked like, how she has dealt with it as an adult, and in the end, she shares a really beautiful vision for how she would like this community to move forward. Um, so let's get into it. Here we go. So about two weeks ago, there was a Costa Council meeting. It was a long weekend. They've called council meetings several times a year. Yeah. Well, the second day they said, oh, we would like some second gens to come on and share their stories. And it became like what was supposed to be a five hour meeting turned into 12 or 13 hours, like something really crazy. And basically we all Zoom bombed and people just started talking and it just unleashed school abuses the sexual assaults, the sexual abuse, the everything. Um, not everybody talked. I didn't talk. I didn't know if I wanted to. So I didn't even raise my hand. I, I was just, mm, we'll see. And then he said, we're going to do another one in about a week. And they did. So, you know, I was like, I, I'd like to talk, I think, this time. You know, I kind of felt like I need to set the record straight especially with regards to my parents. You know, I really feel like there's this divide in, in the community. If you wear a turban, you're in. You don't wear a turban, you're out, period. Oh, she took off her turban. Oh, he took off his turban. So they honestly, for me, don't see the person. They only see the outside, the superficial. Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, I really want to talk about that. And, you know, on the backs of all these people, my dad included, who started the organization. You know, my dad's claim to fame for so long was Yogi, he was the first person to wear a turban. Yogi Bhajan tied the first turban on him. Mm -hmm. And yet Yogi Bhajan and everybody around him abandoned my dad as soon as my dad said, hmm, this is an illegal business. I don't think I want to be a part of it. Hmm. And, oh, you're going to do that to my daughter and you're going to ask me to disown her? No, I'm out. You know, so it was kind of my opportunity to set the record straight. So Saturday morning comes along, Friday night, I'm all nervous. What should I wear? I need to put on my armor. How should my hair look? You know, I just wasn't sure of, you know, I just felt really insecure. And then the morning came, I hadn't slept well. I'm getting ready, everything's wrong. And I call up my dad and I said, there's this meeting and I need you to come. I don't think I can talk without you. And, you know, I'm literally having a panic attack. It's already started. And I'm like, you got to get in the car now and come over and sit with me. Otherwise, I don't think I can do this. And he did, you know. And so when it became my time to talk, you know, not only am I sitting there, there's my dad that people haven't seen in 30 years. 
no longer with a turban and a beard, so they probably don't even recognize him, just quietly sitting next to me, making sure I'm okay for my whole speech. He didn't say a word because it wasn't about him, really. You know, he was making sure I was okay. And um, so when he got there, I was like, okay, I can do this. I can do this. And I just told my story. I told, talked about how young I was when I first was sent away to how I just was sent off to every first kid's ashram that was, was made. So I was the part of the guinea pig group, I call it. We never had enough food. We were always dirty. We often were running around with no shoes on. I mean, we can go through the list. And, you know, just talked about, it went from DC to Phoenix to Espanola and who we lived with and who I lived with and who I'd see get beat up and to India in 81. And that I had learned in, I thought I had been in India for several years. And I started to put together my timeline called all my different parents. I have two dads, a mom. And I started to call everybody. I'm like, so when was this? And when was this? And it turns out I did go to India, the first group in 1981, but I was back in 1982, about 10 months later. And in my head, it was so traumatic. And in that time period, I learned Hindi and how to read and write Punjabi, right? I, you know, like this little kid did so much yet was so sick, totally malnourished, came back with such bad dysentery, took longer than my stay in India for them to cure me. Um, and that it just seemed bigger than 10 months. That time frame. that what I realized is trauma changes our perception of time. And that was, you know, and that, the trauma is so big that that's, that feels like such a big monumental time frame in my life, yet it was so small. But really, it was all the trauma of all those years, too. But it culminated with that and how just it, the worst of the worst. And how I really don't remember how I got back from India. I remember being with some strangers in their home in Delhi. You know, they just would drop you off with other Sikhs. And somehow I got on a plane and I'm like nine years old. I think about it. I'm like, I would never do that to my kids. What if they never got on a plane? What if someone trafficked them? You know what I mean? And I got home and I was so dirty and so skinny. I only had one pair of underwear left. Everything had been stolen by the Betagees and all that in, in, at Gurnanak Fifth Centenary, and I had one pair of underwear, and I was so thin I had to tie it in a knot for them to stay on. And my mom said I looked like a skeleton, like I had just left a concentration camp. So, so there's that, and I, and then I just talked about how it was divisive. We were put in position so that as soon as someone like Yogi Bhajan who was the only person with money said, hmm, come work for me. We were all like, yes, we've made it. We won't be hungry anymore. We'll have stuff finally, right? Um, or we're honored because he's our God. Um, I didn't want to work for him, actually. I was one of the few people who didn't, and I was also one of the few people who got to go to an American school and did fine in it. 
you know, and um, got a good education. And, but they said, oh, well, we want you to work at the secretariat for a year. And uh, I thought like I had to, I had no choice. It was my duty in talking with my parents and everything. Oh yeah, that's probably what I should do. And just a couple months into it, I worked under Narinjankar, the secretary. From day one, she started asking me if I didn't want it, if I, if Yogi Bhajan wanted me to stay, would I not go to college? AKA the message was, stay with us, be a secretary, don't get an education. And I was being groomed as to how to take care of him at night, how to take care of his space, where everything went. And the irony is I haven't talked about this and those details ever. And we're talking with those details with other people who had the same thing and we've never talked to each other. It's all the same. Hmm. We got the same training. We had to put the water in a certain place or there was this really gaudy silver cover with all these jewels had to go in his water. You know, like you had to fringe out and comb the fringe on, on the rug, you know, <laughs> just really weird stuff. And only we would know that, you know, as part of the grooming process. And, and, you know, so then I went on to the group to explain going through that and being part of his entourage and what happened to me um, that led to the sexual assault, which is when I was working at the secretariat, but not only during the day, I'd have to go take care of his space. At night, you'd have to hang out and sit in his room and that he would watch TV and this lazy boy and he'd sit around, he was all fat and he'd fart. And, um, and you were what age at this point? I'm 18. And he, 1990. It was 1990. All in 90. Yeah, 18. And you'd have to massage his feet and do all the stuff. Well, mostly I just sat timidly in on the side. And one time he took me aside, but with my father. My father was always with me. And he started yelling at me. And the yelling at people was very common. He would do it to a lot of people. So, But he took me aside into a room with my dad and started calling me a slut. And that he knew I had had sex. And that, you know, some of my peers had told him so. And, you know, I'm just left in tears. This isn't true at all. And he's making me swear I'm not you know, that I'm still a virgin. Okay. So it's humiliating, you know, in general. And then in front of my father, like, it's just like double whammy. And then another time I'm wearing a particular dress and um, he's like, Oh, Heidi car. I really like that dress on you. Come back. You too, Baba. That's the kind of dress we want you to wear. You look really great in that. I only want you to wear that kind of dress. So-and-so bring me some money. And he proceeds to put a bunch of money in my hand. He's like, only go buy those dresses. Very sexy. So there begins that. And I'm like mortified that this man's calling me sexy and wants me to dress a particular way for him. Like I'm just creeped out. And I don't know how much later, but within the same time frame in the first couple of months, because I had only worked for them for several months, because um, 
I'm, I'm by myself and it's Dr. Allen's house because that's where he lived. And I'm cleaning and I'm, I don't know, bent over cleaning and he comes upon me and he says, oh, stand up. And I do. And he spins me around and then he proceeds to like full on grope my breasts and see their size and then turns me around and grabs my butt. And he says, and I'm going to get quoted so I don't mess it up. says you're nearly ready but you're nearly ready to be one of my no he said you are almost ready and turning out very nicely Ugh. and I just that was it I ran home I told my parents I'm out of here I'm taking off my turban. I'm drawing the line in the sand now. This is it. I know what that means. The turban means I'm in. I'm taking it off. I am out. Knowing that the, it's a real possibility my parents are going to disown me. Yeah. I didn't care. I was like, I'm not living in this shit. And they were like, no, we're not going to disown you. No, we get it. And I stopped wearing a turban. However, before my parents left, so that was November-ish, um, we went to Calsa Council, and at that time, Calsa Council was in Florida every year and went after winter solstice. And we didn't go to winter solstice. We just went to Calsa Council because my dad was trying to have his one last stand to see if he, um, I don't know, could change their minds or something and still figure out a way to, to live in something that he dedicated, you know, since the time he was like 20, his life to. Because chronologically, he was disowned before this for not wanting to participate in the illegal business, or did that happen after? Pretty much. I mean, he was still around-ish, but not like before. He wasn't part of the everyday entourage because he refused to be a part of Paul, which is Yogi Bhajan's son-in-law, and Hari Jiwan. Um, they had, and my dad had an illegal toner typewriter business. Well, essentially, they would find out people who had a similar model of a typewriter and a toner. This, this is as much as I know. I think they would send them to them with a big bill through the postal system. Well, the, you know, the police for the postal system came by and made them sign affidavits. They would no longer use the postal service to, to do illegal businesses. And the, the other two guys refused to stop. So my dad left. He said, no, I'm not doing this. I just signed an affidavit. I could go to jail. It could get worse. He's like, I'm not doing this, and we shouldn't be doing this anyway. He'd been trying to talk them into starting an office and school supply business anyhow, so he went off and did it, and did very well, by the way, mm -hmm. uh -huh. without a turban on. So <laughs> <laughs> let's just add that. But, you know, um, he, what? so he was already sort of like questioning a lot of things, which I think what I'm grateful for, and I explained this to the calls council, because if he hadn't been questioning those things, the outcome for me could have been totally different. I could have been abandoned by them for sure. And um, we went to the Calls Council meeting and even then in 1990, the, the children in India were malnourished and there was not enough money in the programs because 
all of it was getting skimmed off the top and sent to Saw Paul. Saw Paul would set up all the tickets and he'd get $30,000 in kickback and it wouldn't go to the kids. I know, I mean, it's just disgusting, but that's just a, a small example. And so my dad got up in front of the Calls Council meeting and in front of Yogi Bhajan and said, well, if there's no money, then I think we should sell all your jewels, Yogi Bhajan, to fund the children because they are, you've always said they're more important and you should make them more important. And you could have, and then you could have heard a pin drop and Hari Jiwen's in, in the background literally telling my dad, I'm going to fucking kill you, you know? And, and then my, my brother, my godbrother, so my godfather was there saying the same thing. And my godbrother, who just got back from India, stood up and said, how awful the conditions are and still nothing changed. And so in a, in a weird way, I'm grateful that I got to speak, that someone's really finally waiting to keep listening. But part of me doesn't know if anything's going to change. Sure. The first gen. Yeah. You know, but at least I've said my piece. That's an interesting kind of uh, circle, like full circle where your story, you know, with your dad going to the Kalsa Council, Kalsa Council, basically speaking to deaf ears and then you know, this time around, maybe people listening a little bit more. Who knows a little bit. I mean, I did get some of the first gen saying, oh my God, I feel so bad. I didn't reach out to your parents when they took off turbans. Like they're hearing it. There are some people, but most of them, it's like a blank stare and, it, mm -hmm. and deaf ears. And, and we really are conditioned in 3HO to not hear or see anything emotional to really not hear or see the truth besides the rhetoric and the narrative we're told. And some of those people have been living that life for 50 plus years, you know, and they may never see it. I don't think it's right, but they're going to, I think they're going to be watching a crumbling organization mm. and they're not going to know what happened. Mm -hmm. They can potentially never come face to face with the reality of it. You know, at least I don't feel like I have to be silenced all the time anymore because the silence was deafening. Yeah. You know, but who knows what that outcome is going to be. I'm not optimistic. Right, right. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. And, you know, as in so much of the history of 3HO anyway, um, the people who are listening are probably not present anyway because they don't want to participate anymore it seems like the people who hear it just leave so it's not like they try to you know precisely it. right and the other people who were on the call listening are either doing it because they want to see if there's any truth and validity or they're gathering evidence against us because hmm. that that that's coming yeah yeah you know well, good luck <laughs> I'd like to see that one. I'd like to see convince them. Themselves. I'm not sure that they'd convince They're not going to be able to convince <laughs> the law of anything. Right. So good luck with that. And I hope they lose all their money trying. You know, I mean, I hate to put it that way, but I am vindictive in that, from yeah. that perspective. Well, it's, I mean, it's crumbling. There's, you know, there's at, at some point, I don't see that they're going to have much to stand on in terms of morality. You know, they might have some other avenues that they could follow such as their, you know, like the yoga teacher trainings or whatever, but in terms of being like a, a sanctified moral institution. We'll see how long that lasts. If you've been reading on the Premka site, some people are like trying to start a class action lawsuit against all that. Yeah. 
for misrepresenting him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And now they have what they feel like are unsellable certificates because no one's going to want to, they don't want to peddle it. Right. And they don't think anyone's going to want to buy that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's, let's see what happens there. Um, I, I had quoted you, I think in at least two other podcasts, um, Oh, is that right? Oh, I'm excited. I didn't about, even listen. Well, you know, because we did the podcast. And so just for a backstory for people listening, like we did this podcast a few weeks ago. And unlike any podcast I've ever done, it just would not convert. Um, so I could not turn it into a file that was readable. Um, so here we are doing it again, which I'm really glad because now it's after this Calsa Council meeting and it sounds like. Yeah, in a way. Yeah. Right. There's kind of a nice, right. ni- nice narrative here. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I was so fascinated by you telling me in the last time we did this about the, uh, the library that you had to organize all these oh. documents in. Oh yeah. Let me, <laughs> uh, let me tell you. So at the secretariat in Los Angeles, right? So that's on Robertson. You've been there? No, no. no? Like it's a separate building. As, mm-hmm. like, it's across the- from the, from the ashram. So there's on Proust road, there's the ashram and then there's that weird, sort of triangular like park playground. and across from yeah. that park um you'll see you know this indian shape and you'll see oh, no. anadi shakti and that's the secretariat that's where all the secretaries do their work <laughs> yeah archiving all his stuff for posterity well there's a library and in that library he's so narcissistic he has a book every book that's ever ha- mentioned his name good or bad he owns it and i had two I don't know, clean it and reorganize it at some point. And I opened one and I started reading and it was blatant about how he has this harem of women and he's known to have sex with all of them. And I was like, oh my God, I'm sitting in this right now, right? I'm starting to put all the pieces together. Don't go to college. Go learn how to take care of his room. You know, wear this sexy dress. And it just started clicking and clicking and clicking. And I was like, I, I cannot be here. There's no way that this person who essentially is supposed to be like my grandfather. It's just so incestuous and gross that I'd want to have any sort of sexual relationship with. But yeah, he and I don't know if they still have it, but knowing them, they do because they think like it's going to be worth something. There's some freaking museum with his jewels, his ugly ass jewels. Really? That's so holy. Yeah, in Espanola. Wow. You know, I just, I, you know, I think people, the, the opposite of the whole idea of Sikhism, Guru Nanak was trying to find a path away from this idea. And here, this man bastardized Sikhism, first of all, has so many Hindu tenets, it's not even funny. And um, totally decides to become a guru himself in the most narcissistic way to get whatever he wants. And, he, and it's like, it's, you know, I was reading, Philip wrote something and it's true. I was like, he was like, it's like he made himself his own prisoner and his own lies. You know, like, and then there's a point and the reason that people like that get so mean is because, what did he say? He said, they're mad at you for believing the lie and they can't get out of the lie and have a break from the lie. And, you know, I mean, it's just so the layers are so deep. 
still don't feel sorry for him. So. <laughs> um, there was that a post that he wrote? Yeah. in, in the Premka forum just recently. Oh, and I yeah. Yeah. He's going to have another talk. So I, I want to go listen to it. He's very, um, I really like listening to his stuff just because it's so new track. It's, it really, it's very informed and it's really without emotion. Like I really have a lot of emotion behind my like. I can't believe that guy where he's just going to say, well, this is a history of how these type of people act. Here's an example, right? Yeah. Well, he didn't grow up in this, right? He was a Sikh for 12 years or something. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. He had a practice. Yeah. And it was in college that he started to see or something. Yeah. He, he, it's pretty interesting. So he has firsthand knowledge. This isn't, yeah. Maybe, which is maybe why he's so interested in him as a topic versus maybe every cult leader. I don't know. I don't know what, if it's just Yogi Bhajan. I haven't done the research, but it feels like it. Well, there, he wrote that really great article about, um, which was sort of like the footnotes that never existed to his teachings. Um, For me, it was called From Maharaj to Mahantantric. Right. Great. Like where, where, where it all came from, really. Yeah, 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 really interesting. And he, what was the guy's name? He basically just picked up his pamphlet and copied it. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually tried to get that pamphlet because I was really curious, but it's like, it's like, I don't know, it was like $500 or something for a book. And I was thinking, oh, no, I'm not that curious. Just print out the PDF. <laughs> well, no, the, it, it's not available. It's like, it's some like, you know, old book you have to import from India or something. He has another PDF, but it didn't have anything recognized that I recognized in it. Mm. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I thought his stuff is very um, well-researched and very accurate. And I liked hearing it from a, like I said, a non-emotional standpoint. Yeah. One of the things that we were talking about in the last podcast too, which I'd love for you to talk about is just how you reintegrated into society after you know 18 years or however many years of living under a certain I mean you had certain things that you thought were true yeah you know certain things that were just how you live that you don't do that you do do um taking off my turban was like liberating integrating into society was social anxiety times 200 I didn't know what the rules were. With 3HO, you know the rules. Women do this, men do this. Um, Even though I'd even gone to secular schools, I still didn't interact with those people, not really, right? So I went to college and while I did well in school, I didn't do well personally. Um, bad relationships. I mean, some good, but just with them too long for the wrong reasons, looking for a family, someone that I had a connection with, like, so either stayed with people longer than I should have, or ended up in just terrible situations. One time with a drug addict who would be missing all the time, come back totally high, you know, like, you know, and I didn't know I was never around that stuff, you know? And And I'm, I don't do well with drugs and alcohol. So that was never like, 
immediately like I didn't become one of those people who just navigated that way. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I finally had to, my parents at that time, when I went away to college, they, they left LA to get away because they couldn't stay there and they moved to Seattle. And I um, finished college and even though I had a job and everything, I, I just wasn't doing well mentally. And I left, I, I moved up to Seattle, I had to. And once I was in Seattle and I had my parents, and let me tell you, I was with my parents all the time. Didn't live with them, but every weekend we were together. We all ate out together two or three times a week. You know, I needed that stability. I needed to have a home life that I didn't have, that I, I feel basically robbed of for decades. And I, what I, I, I tell my parents, I said, I got my formative years after college, you know, my stability. Once I knew I had that stability and I had them here and that they were always going to be here for me, everything kind of clicked. Prior to moving to Seattle, almost every six months I'd, I'd move apartments. Um, you know, just those typical college things, but even after college, typical instability. Oh, some grass is always greener kind of thing. And once I'd moved here, I didn't. I had one apartment, eventually met my husband. We bought a condo and we've since only bought one house. You know, like I've never lived in one place so long as in our home. And so I definitely found the stability that I needed, you know. Um, but interestingly, going through this process and having all these doors open, what I find that I didn't have was closure. You know, that was always missing. And I was scared of closure. I was, I was scared of telling the truth. You know, I had, I had really good friends. I mean, an example is Sonatum. We were... Our, she was my oldest friend, my first friend in the Pomona ashram. We remained close until I took off my turban. I even have a picture of us after my turban's off. But you know, the turban is the defining factor. People move away and everybody else is going through their own stuff too. You know, we were young. And one year she was in Seattle. And my godfather said, you should come with me and listen to Sonata. And I was really scared. I was like, oh. She's not going to want to see me. I wear black now. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. And he's like, no, you should come. So I did. And it was great. Like, I was really happy to have the Bonnies back. You know, in a way, this is stuff that's part of your DNA that you'll never get other ways. And I still think it's beautiful music, you know, and, um, and her voice is amazing. At the end, I stood in line. She gets this long line of people who want to talk to her. And I was like, all right, I'll do it. I'll, put, I'll get in line. And I got in line and I walked up to her and she looked at me and she just burst into tears. And she says, oh my God, I didn't know how much I missed you and love you. And she just started bawling. So then we're bawling. <laughs> and every time she's in town now, we make a point of seeing each other, you know, and that was a happy thing for me. As soon as the floodgates opened with the Pam book and everything, and people started posting their story, and I knew I was going to post my story, one of my fears was, here I'd just gotten her and some other people from the community in my life in a way that I felt comfortable. Even though I knew this side of Yogi Bhajan, I didn't have to believe in him. 
I didn't feel like I had to justify my belief and I wasn't asking them to justify theirs. So here I'm going to tell this story and everyone's going to come face to face with the fact that I'm going to tell the story. And I felt like, Oh, I'm going to be ostracized all over again. So I called her up and I said, I have something I need to tell you. And she didn't call back prior to my telling her because she was like, Oh yeah, I'll call you tomorrow. And I was like, okay. And she didn't. And about a week later she had called me, but I already posted my story, but I was like, okay, I, I made my effort. I want her to know that this needs to be told. So I told, you know, I'm good friends with Irma. I wasn't letting Irma just sit out there having told her story and be like, act like the only one after Premka. I was like, no. And then the floodgates opened and I'm grateful to Irma for that. And so then, you know, since then, then she called me and yada, yada, yada. My point is I haven't lost my friends. I haven't lost my friends. If anything, I've gained more because people are willing to hear the truth now. As hard as it is going to be for their own journey and their own connection to Sikhism, I don't think Sikhism is about, you don't have to believe in Sikhism to believe in Yogi Bhajan. It, it, Yogi Bhajan isn't Sikhism to me. So those who wish to be a Sikh, they should be. You know, I, I just personally can't do any organized religion. So you, you, I mean, that's interesting because, so this was like, you know, the, the music, the, the mantras, the, the yoga, like all these things were like, so ingrained. Do you, sounds like you feel, you feel good about, you know, like listening to Bonnie's or whatever, like that's something that brings up. I mean, I'll always listen to a particular song that Sankar put out. First of all, I loved her. Mm -hmm. Her voice is phenomenal. She, she was the first Enya, if you ask me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I still love her Ardaw song. I yeah. still listen to it to this day. You know, and it, it's a beautiful memory for me. You know? It seems like she must have come to a similar, because she ended up changing her name at the end. And so it seems like she may, maybe knew stuff too and decided she didn't want to put up with this anymore. How many people did. Yeah. Yeah. But at the time, no one else would listen and he was alive and he would be able to convince people of certain narratives. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, that's what happens with charismatic people. Yeah. You know, they just do that. Yeah. Yeah. You were saying, I remember you were saying how the lawsuits that, um, were were going on that everyone within the organization was told that they were dismissed and when in fact they were settled out of court mm -hmm. yeah and and we all believed the narrative nobody looked up i mean there wasn't the internet then <laughs> looking up records wasn't as easy but no one questioned it even people who saw her being bruised you know and for the second gen, all of us, she was so cool. We were these young kids. We were all hanging out in Espanol, and she got to wear high heels. And now I look at these high heels. Huh? Sinkar? No, no, no. Kate felt. Oh, oh, okay. Sorry, you're talking about the lawsuit. Yeah, the lawsuit. Sorry, I just wasn't sure yeah. who she was. <laughs> and we were just like, God, she's so cool. She gets to wear high heels. And, yeah. and that turns into, you know, now we know it's part of his fucked up sex shit. Straight up. And if you read the interviews and you read the accounting, 
her sister deserves to be in jail. She held her fucking sister yeah. down while he raped her. Yes. Period. Well, and it's in the public domain. Right. Well, at the very least, because she was accused of this, I don't think she should be the head of a spiritual organization. Apparently um, she quit. But that oh, doesn't mean okay. anything. I don't, I'm sure she's still getting her monies. Right. It, yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. When you are an accomplice to a crime, you should be in jail. Yeah. So, and then you know how many pedophiles are hidden in plain sight? And there's one in Espanola right now. Huh. They do not, they think that they can handle internally or someone can have a meditation and it'll all be fixed. And there were kids who came on, showed pictures of their abuser who are still in the organization. Like how, how does the organization rectify that? It's disgusting. Well, it doesn't seem like it should. It doesn't seem like the, that 3HO is in any way, um, should any- This is how you rectify it. You get, you get them held accountable by the, mm. by the way the law works. Absolutely. They need to be <clears throat> serving time, hopefully, if there's any such thing, figuring out how to handle this. And thirdly, they have to be on like a, a sex offenders list, mm -hmm. living a certain number of feet away from children, period, at all times. Like, how is this? And it's not just that. Men abused women, women abused women. Women, I'm sure, abused men. I mean, the system of abuse, it was so, it's just never-ending system of abuse. Yeah. So. Right. Well, yeah, when, you're, when your authority is someone who is sort of experimenting on the, on the fly and making up all these rules and, um, you know, just sort of creating it as he goes along, it almost, it almost seems like, I mean, I can't for certain but it seems like he sort of made stuff as he went along oh he um, did he must have it's so you sit here you listen to some of his lectures and it's like silence silence clears his throat moves some snot from one nostril to the other and then he says some just derogatory made-up piece of bullshit like how women want to be raped or i mean you know if you're looking at 60% of some piece of whatever in someone's consciousness, and then you, you don't know what the hell he just said. Right, right. Yeah, everyone's like, yeah, yeah, you know? And I'd be sitting there like, huh? You know? Right. Say what? <laughs> Falling asleep. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. How, how did, how did your parents feel about this? I mean, like you were describing your mom looking at you after you came back from India, looking like you were starving, like what, what was going on for her? Do you know? Tons of guilt. And, and I think it, my mom has a, a brain trauma injury, so I don't think she has any more guilt now, but prior to that injury, oh, I had to like make her feel okay with the choice. I mean, she would cry to me all the time, apologize all the time for what she put me through. <clears throat> and I understand, like, I understand. I would never, ever put my kids in that position. And when you finally wake up, re realizing what the hell you did has got to be awful. 
but it doesn't change the fact that it happened. Yeah. You know, and I can sit there and go, oh, it made me the person I am today. Yeah, but it also fucked me up in some ways. And it, um, you know, I'm still dealing with the fallout of it. Um, but what I am grateful for is I made sure I wasn't going to do that at all to my children. I was very clear they weren't going to sleep away camps even, that it's not just Sikhs. All sorts of organizations have weird pedophiles and mm -hmm. bullying groups and all sorts of things that I didn't want my children to be a part of. You know, and I prescribe to the Asian rule of household living, but I tell my kids all the time, God, I hope you stay with me till you get married. You know, like I'm, we're building a, our own community. You know, you don't have to just leave because, you know, that's the American way we do it at 18. You're out of here. You know, even my husband, when he said, I wasn't ready to go to college. My parents said I had to. He said, and it really screwed me up for a while. He wanted to be at home, you know. And my daughter, when she turned 18, she started crying. Mom, I'm not ready to be 18. I don't want to make my own choices yet. I need you still. And I said, well, guess what? You can make your own choices and ask for advice now. She goes, okay. okay. Yeah. Awesome. Well, is there anything else that you want to make sure is on record before we close out? Yeah. So my biggest thing now, the thing that hurts me the most, it's not what happened to me. Um, and this might be a second gen thing or like, I find we end up creating bonds and we're fiercely loyal to each other. But so many people I grew up with, so many of my brothers and sisters have nothing. They don't have an education. They don't have a way to really make decent money. They are figuring all this out now. And I really wanna figure out a way to help them. Help them know what they're worth help them know how they go about doing it. Even if they do go to school, even if they need to take out a student loan, whatever it is, but that they deserve it. And that, you know, there's too much fallout. There's been too much drug abuse, alcohol abuse, suicides, depression, attempted suicides. Like, it's not okay. Mm -hmm. And I don't want any of even third, fourth, and fifth people who don't feel like they have choices, I want them to feel like they have a place they can go to, that they have a community still, that, that'll help them figure out as they navigate whatever it is in their life, what the rules are and how to do it. So I hope that that's what we get out of this at the minimum. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for doing this again. No, it's my pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. You were so persistent and sweet and let me <laughs> totally blow you off last week, but I just emotionally couldn't do it. I thought, oh, this will be great. I'll unload on her. <laughs> oh, God, no, I couldn't get out of bed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can only imagine, I mean, really can only imagine because it's been pretty rough for me to process all this and yeah. I didn't grow up in it. So, you know, I'm definitely. Yeah not in a rush. Um, and where did you move to? I'm in uh, Redmond. 
Oh, okay, now. still? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, we, we just moved from a smaller to a, a bigger, bigger. thing. I got you. <laughs> because I was like, did you move to the city? Can no, we see each other? Oh, okay. bound. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you. Yeah, Hopefully but I'll, 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 um, when things open up, I would love to meet you. So. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All, All right. right, thank you. All right, bye. Bye.